It's always good to have our hearts prepared before we come to study God's Word and just encouraged by those rich truths, remembering that even as our sin is revealed, we are thankful that we are covered in Christ so that as we stand before God, we stand not in our own power and strength, we stand covered in the riches of Christ's righteousness and we walk now in the power of the Spirit. We are in Romans 7, and I do pray after this week we will speed it up, I promise. We will work our way through this at a much quicker pace here soon, but I have one more truth as a guideline that we need to set as a foundation, and then we can quickly construct this house. Because there are, as I think through it, there is the struggle from experience to try to interpret passages by experiences because we can see ourselves in the passage. And whether you were a believer or unbeliever, you can see the expressions of yourself revealed from this text. And then we get confused saying, well, this can't be the expression of a believer. or It can't be an expression of an unbeliever. And so we do need a kind of biblical anthropology We need to have the Bible's understanding of man to be able to understand ourselves properly and understand our particular battle properly. If we don't have the right biblical categories and even the biblical examples in our mind, we're going to get confused when we're looking at the text of Scripture. And ultimately, all we're trying to do is understand what the author is saying in that particular context in which he is saying it. And this brings us to this question of man. If last week we looked at how the unrighteous man can do good things, this week we look at the other side of the equation, how the righteous in Christ can still do evil things and why that is. I was just thinking about the old adage, and I forget who said it, but I think it was C.S. Lewis just describing mankind. And I think he aptly described it when he said that of man, the, the unrighteous man on his best day can look like a saint. And the righteous man on his worst day can look like a devil. And that's true in our own hearts. At times we could see ourselves in our experience looking more one way or another If that's not who we are by nature, it's certainly manifesting itself in experience. And this is what we see coming out here in Romans chapter 7, the personal struggle of an individual. So I have said as we come through this context that this is Paul describing the heart of an unregenerate Jew who is under the law. He has a high view of the law. He has a high view of God's ways and purposes, but he continually sees, while he sees the law, he continually sees his shortcomings, how he fails to keep the law. He loves the law in the sense that he knows that it is good, he knows that it is right, he sees the law as virtuous, but he has no personal power within, no ability to continually keep it. Kind of like a broken clock, he might get it right a few times, but there's no consistency, no persistence uh, in the regular upkeep because within himself there is complete inability. 
He may, even on its best day, delight in the riches and the glory of the law, but then he will see sin within himself. And when sin comes out, when sin is revealed, then what for the natural man? How does the natural man get rid of guilt? How does the natural man deal with his transgression? Can't go back to the law because the law cannot deliver. He cannot turn to the law and think that the law is going to rescue him because the law cannot provide righteousness. It only points to the path of righteousness. It only affirms deeds as either righteous or unrighteous. But it cannot give what one does not have. Only the gospel of God can do that. And so the natural man who might have been informed with the law, even delight and see it's good, the natural man created in the image of God can affirm the things that are good, but he has no power, only sees his impotence, his weakness. But on the other hand, we still battle with sin. We who are in Christ, we who have been born again, we who are alive, we battle with sin. We battle with the struggle against warring sin. And we wonder, where does this come from? Where does this battle originate from? How is it that we struggle so much? And this is what Paul draws out in these verses, where the battle comes from. He brought it out in the question in verse 13 when stating, Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? That is, is this law which is virtuous, did it cause me to die? The answer, of course, may it never be. Rather, it was sin. Sin was the cause. Sin was driving this. Sin was bringing about death. Sin took that which was good and caused that which is good to be a cause of death for me. It was sin. To which we would then ask you, ask ourselves, where did this sin come from? Well, that's where verses 14 through verse 25 come into play. Paul begins to explain this. And this is, again, where we can see ourselves right there, right in the middle of this. Romans 7 is defining, is defining and explaining the struggle with sin and the battle with sin and where is exposed, exposed within us. So he says in verse 14, For I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. Or literally, I am of flesh having been sold into bondage to sin. Sin is the, the war that we're warring against sin and it originates, is in our flesh. And it doesn't go away when we become a believer. Just want to clarify that particular point. If you have thought up to this point that I have been arguing of an innocence from, that we would never sin again if you were a believer, that you would be totally eradicating sin, that never have the battle, that you would uh, be perfect this side of eternity, that has not been my argument at all. I have just argued this, that in Jesus Christ we have been set free. But I do remind you, the battle is there. Turn back to Romans 6 just to show you this. Even though we are alive to God, even though we have the grace of God ruling in our lives now, that doesn't mean the battle goes away. Romans chapter 6, notice verses 11, 12, and 13, he states this, 
First of all, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Meaning this has to be our mindset. When we are in the battle, we remind ourselves we are dead to that. Because it doesn't experientially feel that way. Mentally, we are resolved in our minds that this is who we are in Christ. Verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. This is the war. We have to resist evil. We have to not let it reign in our members. We're not giving our members over to the rule of sin. Even while we're alive, this is how we are battling. We are resisting the rule of sin within our lives. Verse 13, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. There's the choice that we have each and every day, the choice to give our members to unrighteousness or our members to righteousness. This battle hasn't stopped when we became a believer. It became alive alive now it's a real battle it's a real struggle and we are each moment choosing to give in to the flesh or to give in to the spirit what are we going to give into certainly as believers we can fall back into those old practices so the battle with sin doesn't go away when you become a believer. And so certainly when we come to Romans chapter 7 then, verse 14 through 25, it's easy to see the conflict and think of that conflict. It must be ours. It must be our conflict. But there is a distinction between this person in Romans 7 and between the believer. And that's what I want to draw out today. While we believers might sin and might give in to sin, we are not in the same condition as this person is here in Romans 7. And while our picture might look similar for a moment, our life might line up with their life for a moment, there is a completely distinct path between the unrighteous and the righteous. As he said, even a saint on his worst day might look like a devil. But he is by nature a saint, and he is by nature controlled by the Spirit of God and moved by the truth of God so that he would be pulled out and set free from that life of death. Now we focus, and we just focused on this one phrase, but I am of flesh. Spent way too long on that one phrase, but this is important for us to catch. Because they were, now we're looking at the second half of the equation. What does it mean to be of flesh? And I know many of you have been waiting for a long time thinking here, this, we need an answer to this. What does it mean to be of flesh or in flesh? Now we, can, we have to be careful when we navigate through this because there is a temptation to confuse the idea with flesh to narrow it down to meaning just our physical bodies. Meaning that we're in the flesh, which means we're just our physical bodies. And the temptation for us to think is that we are, because we have this physical body, therefore we are, we are dominated by sin, there's nothing we can do. That idea 
is an idea that would then begin to manifest itself like this, that one, because our physical body of the flesh is evil, therefore our physical bodies are evil, but our immaterial parts are righteous. Our hearts, our mind, our will is righteous. Those immaterial parts are unstained, but the material parts of man, the physical parts, those are corrupted. Well, there's a problem with that kind of thinking. Even though we might be tempted to see it, notice verse 25, that some have concluded something like this in verse 25, when he says, So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. The temptation there, you see the separation between the immaterial part of man, the mind, and the material part of man, his body, the separation, we can begin to think of that ourselves. We might even be tempted to think that's how we're battling. With my mind, with my immaterial parts, I'm doing righteous things, but with my material parts, my physical body, I'm unrighteous. Well, friends, that is a first century heresy that was condemned, that was the heresy of Gnosticism, which bifurcated the material from the immaterial. And Gnosticism even had its own gospel. The Gnostic gospel said that Jesus, the man, was operating and a spirit of God, an emanation, came down and landed upon him when he became the Christ. He then lived a life and when he died, the spirit left him and only his physical body left. So that when he came back, it was his spirit emanation who came back, not his physical body, because the physical was evil, but the, the spirit was right, is holy, just, and good. That was the Gnostic gospel. That's not what we are emphasizing here. We're not separating and saying our physical body is corrupted, but our immaterial parts are good. And we could fall back into that kind of thinking when we are thinking about sanctification. Because it's easy for us to identify the physical parts and it's easy for us to to feel those passions in the moment of temptation. So it's easy for us to drift back into that. But if we did, we would not only be heading into first century error, but we would be confused in our sanctification. Because this, this is the truth, that the flesh is a neutral vehicle by which we are operating through life. And by flesh, I mean in this case, our physical bodies is not, are nothing more than a neutral vehicle that can be directed to righteousness or unrighteousness. After all, that's exactly what Paul said in chapter 6. Do not go on, verse 13, presenting your, in, your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but present them as, as instruments of righteousness. Our flesh, our earthly bodies are a neutral vehicle through which we are navigating through this world that could be directed to righteousness or unrighteousness. But that is only part of the picture. And this is where I, this morning, what I wanted to take time to give us insight into this, how the New Testament particularly uses this phrase, flesh, and what it means As I said, to this point so far, we have seen one side of the equation, that the natural man created in the image of God and having the law of God written on his heart can do good things. But that doesn't mean he is by nature good. 
And he is, by nature, able to walk regularly, continually, persistently in good. It just means that every once in a while he gets it right. Because he is created in the image of God, able to reflect the attributes of God. Again, this distinguishes us from the rest of creation. Our pets don't demonstrate the attributes of God, but we are able to demonstrate them. We can show mercy. We can show love. We can show patience and wrath. We can demonstrate the very attributes that God demonstrates in a righteous way. But we also recognize that man is, by nature, his being is corrupted. So if one thought that I was teaching in such a way that man, I mean the natural man, had an ability within himself to, to please God, earn righteousness or earn favor, you would be missing it because of this second part of the equation. The natural man is of the flesh. His very nature, his very being, his very self-identity is in corruption. It is of the flesh. This is what we want to kind of unpack this morning in our time left. And again, this is helping us see as we work our way through this, our personal experience is not going to be the interpreter of this text because no matter what experience you come from, either belief or unbelief, you're going to be able to see yourself right here in this text. So what we do see is this. Paul begins to identify in verse 14 the very source of the conflict. It's not the law. The law is spiritual. The law is virtuous. What is the source of the struggle? It says, he says, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. He is of flesh. And as we're going to see here in a moment, I'll just give you the big categories, and I want to give you a kind of a tool, I think, that will help you understand this. There are two ways in which the New Testament regularly describes the phrase flesh. It means, one, on one hand, just our physical bodies, our physical makeup. But on the other hand, it could also mean all of our humanness, all of our earthliness. And it can refer to our thoughts, our mind, also our physical bodies, everything that is earthly and natural. These are the two ways in which the term flesh is used. So it'll be important. I'll show you from various passages how it's used both ways so you can see this. You don't have to take my word for it. I'll prove it to you. But here's the key that I want you to understand. I'm going to tell you first. I'm going to tell you at the end so you, you see it. When we think about the believer and the unbeliever and their distinctions, there is a commonality between both the believer and the unbeliever, and is this. Both are in the flesh. That is, both a believer and unbeliever are in their physical bodies. We're in flesh. But the distinction is, the unbeliever is of the flesh, while the believer is of the spirit. It is the, those two prepositions... In and of that I want you to pay attention to and think through when regards to evaluating yourself. Are, we are all in the flesh. But the question is, what are you of? Are you of the flesh or are you of the spirit? The believer 
is in the flesh, but of the Spirit. The unbeliever is in the flesh and of the flesh. And this is what I want to unpack this morning to help you understand these distinctions. First of all, when using the term flesh, flesh refers to, in its natural meaning, in some senses, it refers just to our physical bodies, the physical makeup. Let me just show you some of these passages. Start with Romans six, or Matthew 16. Turn over to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 17. And in this, here's where I'm going to seek to prove that the physical body is one reference of flesh. By the way, if you were to look up the term flesh in the scriptures, there's, the term is sarks. It's used about 119, 120 times. So it's used a lot in the New Testament. Here's an example in Matthew chapter 16 where the term flesh or sarks is used in reference to physical bodies. In Matthew 16, Jesus had just asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter responded with that great quote, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And to which then Jesus gives this reply to to Peter, Blessed are you, this is verse 17, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Notice again, the term flesh and blood here, this means your physical people, bodies. People didn't reveal this to you. Um, Man in his earthly body didn't reveal this to you. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Turn over to Luke chapter 24. You see this again, uh, body or, f- or flesh being used again in reference to a physical body. By the way, again, I, I'm just choosing some examples. There are many more. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus, after the resurrection, is appearing to his disciples, and he appears in this particular case, and he comes to them, and he announces himself in Luke 24, 36, says, peace with you, and they're all startled, troubled within themselves. All of a sudden, here is the one they saw crucified a few days ago is now alive and standing in their presence. They are troubled, verse 38 says, and doubts have arisen in their hearts. To which he then says to them in verse 39 this, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit, notice, does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. What is he referring to here? He's referring to his physical body. And that is the comfort he's giving to them. Look, this is me. This is my physical body. You can touch it. You can see it. You can understand immediately my physical presence is right here. It's the idea of flesh. Turn over to Romans 2. We see it again in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 and verse 28. This is another reference to flesh. In this particular context, Paul is speaking of to the Jews about their customs and practices and he was talking about the custom of circumcision and he is talking about the requirements of the law to be circumcised and uh, he then describes in verse 28 he says this 
For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. This means his physical body. Here in this particular context, he's not talking about his humanness, all that makes him human. He's talking about the, the physical body, the outward in the flesh. Many other passages, you can go to 1 Corinthians 5, 5 and 6, 16, and you can see this over and over again. This is speaking of flesh in the physical body. In 1 Corinthians 5, 5, talking about the judgment of the man who is in their midst, who is rebellious, it says, I turned him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, the means of his physical body. So in this sense, in the New Testament, when speaking of flesh, it speaks of then walking in a physical body. This is why we can say that all people who entered into this world, every human being, all come into this world in the flesh. We have a shared union, a shared relationship with every human being because we are all in the physical body, in the flesh. But there is a broader meaning to this term flesh. And the broader meaning is that of humanness, earthliness, that which is natural, earthly thinking, earthly desires, earthly cravings, all humanness. Things that are, again, characteristic of the natural person outside of God, the earthly person so that in one sense, being in the flesh means not only being in a physical body, but also means having an earthly, natural mindset. That, by the way, is exactly the description of Galatians chapter 5 when he com- contrasts the deeds of the flesh and the deeds of the spirit. It is the mindset of the flesh and the mindset of the spirit. They're in contrast. Let me just show you this. Um, uh, turn over to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John. I stopped at verse 13, the first hour. Verse 14 actually has a debated uh, use that could refer to both the physical body or the humanness, and both would be kind of the idea of, of this. But notice what's happening in John's account here in his Gospel. He is describing how the eternal God became flesh, the incarnate one. It says in verse one, in the beginning the word was with God and the word was God and the word or in the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning. And he was in the beginning with God. So he's describing the pre existence and eternality of Christ. Jump all the way down to verse twelve and thirteen it says this But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And then speaking of these ones who believed, he describes them in verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Was he describing there? It wasn't the will of our humanness that brought about salvation. He was born from something else, born of God. So this flesh here in this phrase in verse 13 means more than just their physical body. It was their own earthliness, their humanness. It's described in other places. 
Turn over to John chapter 17. Even the translators recognize the broader sense of this, of this word here in John chapter 17. Jesus in his high priestly prayer is praying to the Father, asking for the Father to glorify himself through the Son. And in verse 2, it says this, Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Some of your translations may have the phrase mankind. The idea is all people, all humans, not just the referring to their physical bodies, but to all human beings, you have given him authority over all. And to these he you gave him this to the Son, that he may give eternal life. Turn over to Acts. You see this expanded in Acts chapter 2 and verse 17. This is where, again, the translators in our translation particularly draws out this phrase and recognizes flesh means more than just the physical body. It speaks to all humanness. Acts chapter 2 and verse 17 says this, and it shall be in the last days, God says that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. That is the word flesh there. I'll pour forth my spirit on all flesh, on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. There's all, all people, all humans in their humanness. See, again, this is flesh is more than just the idea of a physical body. It is all of their total human makeup, mind and desires and will and personhood. Turn over to Romans chapter 3. You can see in Romans, this used a couple times, Romans 3 and verse 20. This comes out. <clears throat> Speaking of the works of the law, the law again only condemns and it, the law speaks to those who are under the law, verse 20, and then, or verse 19, and now in verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. In this text, the flesh would be not only just the physical body, but all, no human beings and their humanness will be justified before God by the works of the law. Turn over to chapter 7. One more of this is drawn out. It's interesting here in chapter 7 and verse 5 because we see an interchanging use of the term because the two terms in the New Testament that could refer to the physical body are used here. The word sarks, which is translated as flesh, or the word soma, which is translated as body. Those two words are used in this same verse. Notice verse 5. For while we are in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So he's speaking here, it could be that both refers to the physical body or it could be in the flesh that is in our humanness, we have the work of sin within the members of our body. 
I think this is the idea that he is drawing out here is the flesh referring to our entire humanity and then our phys- separated from our physical body. One more passage before we look at our context again, but turn over to chapter 8 in verse 3 and 4. <clears throat> Notice what he says here. For what the law could not do, Romans 8, 3, Weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. This is uh, describing both the difficulties of humanness and the weakness of humanness, but also the identity of the physical body. Jesus Christ came in the flesh. See, friends, this is important for us to see these two categories, flesh being the physical body, but flesh also referring to all natural humanness. Because it is Jesus who came in his earthly body was not with sin. He came and he entered into this physical flesh and he walked on earth in a physical flesh yet was without sin. The flesh itself as a body is a neutral instrument could be directed to righteousness or unrighteousness. But the flesh as reference to humanness, well that is a natural state opposed to God. That is a state that is weak. That is a state that is resistant to the truth. That is a state that is hostile to God and wants nothing to do with the things of God. In fact, that's what he says in verse 8 of Romans chapter 8. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That particular phrase, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, cannot mean that those who are in the physical body because Jesus himself was in a physical body. And if Jesus was in a physical body and was not able to please God, well, then nobody's saved. But if flesh has a reference to the humanness of the natural mind, of the natural affections, of the earthly desires and earthly pleasures, well then, nobody who's operating in that way is able to please God, and that we know to be true. No one in the natural flesh, nobody in their natural humanness, nobody with the human earthly thoughts, earthly affections, earthly passions are going to operate in a pursuit of honoring God. They are unable to please Him. This is why we need the Spirit of God. This is why He then goes on in chapter 8 and describes by the Spirit, particularly verses 12 and 13. Again, so then, brethren, we are no... uh, We are under obligation not to the flesh, that is, to our earthly humanness, to live according to the flesh, that is, our own natural earthly perspective. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Makes a distinction here what the war is, that we are resisting what is earthly natural. We're resisting the practice of our fallen humanity. I'll go back to chapter 7 and verse 14, and we can summarize this again. As I have described is this, to be human, 
To be a, a person, a natural person, is to be in the flesh. We have a physical body. But we are not of the flesh. We are in the flesh, but we are not of the flesh. We are in these earthly bodies. We operate and move about this world in our natural earthly bodies, experiencing joys and pleasures and difficulties and all of that in the natural earthly bodies. But we are not controlled by that. We are not of the flesh. We are of the Spirit. We, while in the flesh, we are of the Spirit. We walk in newness of life. We walk in a new mind, new desires, new affections. And while we remain in this old flesh, we operate with a new mind, a new heart, a new will, and new affections, a new nature, so that we're no longer controlled by the old man, we are controlled by the new man, the Lord Jesus Christ ruling and reigning within us. This is the distinction. And this is where our battle is. Because while we live in the flesh, sometimes you and I return back to the old practices and we go back to being of the flesh. Whenever we resist the Spirit, whenever we, we resist the truth of God, whenever we do not bring our will under the truth, we return back to living of the flesh. And that's what needs to be put off. We need to live in the new man. And to abandon the old man with his old life. So while we are in the flesh, we are not of the flesh. The unbeliever who does not know God is in the flesh and of the flesh. And the law cannot deliver him out of that. The only thing that can deliver us out of that state is the Lord Jesus Christ. He can rescue us and make us alive. Set us free from those natural practices. The struggle for you and I is that sometimes we can see ourselves back in our old man, back in our old practices. We know that battle is easy for us to live that way, but it is not who we are by nature. And it's the key to understand this very principle. The person in Romans seven fourteen through 25 is in the principled state of being under the dominion and control of the flesh. But I am of flesh, he says in verse 14. Sold, or having been sold into bondage to sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. Persistence, that's by the present tense, the persistent, continual, regular practice of being in this state of being in the flesh and of the flesh. Controlled by it. I think about this, uh, again, this is where experience isn't going to be a helpful tool of interpretation for us. I was just thinking about the, the outside perspective, looking in upon someone. And it'd be hard to tell immediately, looking upon somebody, what's going on. Is this person uh, in, you know, we know they're in the flesh, they have a physical body, but what is ruling them? Are they ruled by the Spirit or are they ruled by the flesh as a dominant and controlling practice of their life? For the believer is ruled by the Spirit, as we're going to see in chapter 8. And just to kind of give you a, um, maybe a, uh, 
a, an illustration that I know is uh, startling, but it at least illustrates my point very clearly. Today, there's kind of a growing fascination with the man by the name of Ted Bundy. You can see documentaries all over. There are multiple documentaries made about the guy. The guy has a very uh, uh, you know, compelling story because on one hand, he had a, a life that would be very attractive. I mean, he was a handsome man. He was engaging. He was a good man to his uh, girlfriend and her daughter. He had a virtuous life on one side that this guy looked like a natural um, contributing citizen. He studied law, he practiced law, he demonstrated intellect and intelligence, so all external purposes at one side, you could say this guy is virtuous. And yet on the other side, he was wicked. He was a murderer, a rapist. He was one who was vicious in his attacks. So that the duplicity was so stark that one couldn't believe, well, what kind of guy was this? And yet the details of his crimes demonstrated who he was. See, the difference is, in in thinking about that, we could look upon that individual and we could see in that individual there are times where he would be just like us, loving, virtuous, caring. But yet there are times when he sins and say, well, we could be that too if we gave in to that sin. I mean, listen, when Jesus says, if you were angry with your brother and said to your brother, you fool, you have committed murder in your heart. So that our deeds are just like his deeds. We just didn't go as far as he did in his expression of his wickedness. So that we too could practice evil or practice righteousness just as he could practice evil or practice righteousness. But the distinction between us is this. He is sold into bondage of that state. We sometimes fall into that state. He is regularly sold into the flesh, given over to the flesh, with no power to resist, controlled and dominated by the deeds of the flesh. We are not of the flesh. We are of the Spirit. We, while in this flesh, we are not of the flesh. We are of the Spirit of God. So friends, when you're in spiritual battle, you are going to want to make sure in the midst of that moment that you are not giving yourself over to being of the flesh. That you are reminding yourself, this is not who I am. I'm not living of the flesh. The believer is of the Spirit. The believer walks in newness of life, Romans 7, 6. The believer is alive to God, chapter 6 says. The believer is controlled and moved by the Spirit of God and the truth of God so that we can say of ourselves, this is what I'm of. I am of the Spirit. I am in this world, but not of this world. I am in the flesh, but not of the flesh. I am of Christ. Romans 7 man in verse 14 says, I am of flesh. Now, just to be fair to the view, the, in the original, the term of is not there. This is an adjectival phrase, literally says, I am fleshly. So by implication is of the flesh, but he's saying I am fleshly. And by fleshly, he isn't just saying I'm in the physical body. He means I am controlled and dominated by natural earthliness, sold into bondage to sin. 
Well, that is the one who has not been regenerated. We, on the other hand, are of God. We are, as the scriptures say, children of God. We have the spirit of God ruling within us. We have the mind of Christ. We walk in newness of life. And we do all of that through the vehicle of this neutral flesh, our physical bodies. So our physical bodies are simply the vehicle by which our nature is being manifested. Either we're revealing the righteousness that rules in our heart or the unrighteousness that rules within us. That's important for us in your battle and my battle in sanctification. Because we don't want to operate in such a way as to think, well, I have this physical body, therefore I have to sin. Because I cannot separate it myself from it. And if our physical body was the cause of evil, then even Jesus Christ was evil because he had a physical body. No, it's not just the physical body. It's the whole humanness that is, leads man to corruption. Physical with the earthly mindset and the earthly affections and passions. And that is what has been put off when we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We get to walk in newness of life. Now, that's the last domino. Next week, I get to topple them all over and finish this passage for us. So we shall make some progress over the next couple of weeks. I promise you, no longer will we parse every single word. We will get to speed up here. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for these rich truths, the lessons that we learn here. For indeed, we do need to have a proper mindset that while we're in the flesh, we're not of it. And so we are warring indeed, but we don't war according to the mindset of the flesh and to our earthly reasoning, but we war according to our new heavenly perspective. We war according to the truth and we have the spirit of God ruling and reigning within us and we are alive. And so we are battling now with the spiritual armor that is able to strengthen us and help us stand firm. So as we think about this particular battle and as we work our way through this marvelous text, may we gain wisdom and insight into our own selves and into our own practices so that we would learn not to trust in ourselves and our experiences and our power, but we would learn to trust in the clarity and sufficiency of your word, knowing that as we war according to your truth, we find strength. And we find the ability to endure and we find peace and hope and we find righteousness formed within us. For as we yield in righteousness, as we yield ourselves to the truth, we are being conformed into the very image of your son. We are being sanctified. So may that be at work within us now as we yield to the truth. It's in your blessed name we pray. Amen.